the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us this afternoon. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Today we're going to talk with um, Scott Gilchrist. He is the teacher of the downtown Bible class. We're going to talk about their Christmas program that's coming up this Wednesday. We're also going to talk a little bit about, well, Christmas itself. So uh, listen up for some important details if you'd like to join us at the Art Museum uh, this Wednesday midday. We're also going to talk with um, Dennis Turi. He's a retired pastor. He's a, uh, the executive director of the Parent Education Association PAC. We'll talk about some year-end giving, that political action um, tax credit, which I would really encourage you to take full advantage of. The, the government can keep your 50 or $100, depending on whether or not you file as an individual or as a couple. Or you can um, donate to an organization that reflects your worldview and uh, get that back on your taxes. It's a tax credit, as I mentioned. Dennis Torrey will join us to talk about that. And we're going to talk with James Mustich. He is the author of 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die. Hopefully that's not soon, but the subtitle is A Life-Changing List. And it is really an extensive volume I don't need 700 pages, but it really is well done in helping to introduce you to some great books, books you might consider reading. Uh, And it doesn't just give you the title of the book, the author, a picture of the cover and then a little blur, but it helps um, to put it into a broader context to give you some uh, leads to other books that are similar or books by the same author. Anyway, we're going to get into all of that when he joins us in the five o'clock hour. And by the way, that includes um, books to read before you die for young people too. So if you're just a, if you have young people in your family and you want to get them exposed to some good books, this is a great resource to help you with that. So it's a good resource for your own library or the library of those who are already avid readers. So you'd like to encourage to become uh, avid readers. So we're going to talk with, um, with him in the five o'clock hour. But first, a little bit of what's been developing in the news over the weekend and uh, this morning. Fired FBI Director James Comey uh, returned to Capitol Hill today for more testimony before House members. (sighs) A deadline for a possible government shutdown on Friday looms as both White House and Democrats are both standing their ground in their dispute over funding for the president's border wall. Now, there was some whisper earlier today that they may have come up with a a way to extend that timeline um, into the days ahead. We'll try to follow that story as it develops. And a top Republican predicts former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn's conviction for lying to the FBI. Investigators will be tossed. It's a prediction, but is it an informed prediction? We'll take a look at that. In an interview um, with President Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, he insisted the president would never sit down with special counsel Robert Mueller in the wake of allegations that Flynn was pressured into talking to the FBI without having a lawyer present. And President Trump wondered in a tweet over the weekend whether Saturday Night Live and NBC should be challenged in court after he was the focus of an SNL Christmas parody in which he apparently imagined himself not president, having lost and what his life might have been like. 
And um, Catriona Gray of the Philippines is named Miss Universe in 2018, defeating contestants from 93 other countries for the crown in Bangkok, Thailand. James Blind was not in the running. Well, fired FBI Director James Comey uh, returned to Capitol Hill today uh, further to face rather further grilling behind closed doors about alleged political bias in the agency under his watch, especially in the wake of allegations that former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn was pressured into answering questions without having legal representation. Uh, when he previously testified on December the 7th, the key focus of questioning from the lawmakers then was Comey's decision to draft the 2016 statement recommending against filing criminal charges in the Clinton email probe before the former secretary of state uh, was uh, even interviewed, as well as the alleged political bias demonstrated in a slew of text messages and leaks by top FBI officials. And the Trump administration Sunday reaffirmed the president's insistence that he would allow a partial shutdown of the federal government if Congress does not provide $5 billion to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border with senior advisor Stephen, uh, rather, I think it's... uh, I'm not sure if it's Stephen or Stephen Miller calling it a fundamental issue. The Democrat Party has a simple choice. They can either choose to fight for America's working class or to promote illegal immigration. You can't do both, Miller said, speaking on CBS News Face the Nation. When asked if the administration was willing to allow parts of the government to cease operation at midday Friday, if the wall is not funded, Miller answered, if it comes to that, absolutely. On NBC News, Meet the Press, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer insisted that President Trump is not going to get the wall in any form. So the showdown is begun. A leading Republican is predicting that special counsel Robert Mueller's case against ex-National Security Advisor Michael Flynn will soon be thrown out of court. U.S. Representative Daryl Issa, speaking on Sunday Morning Futures on Fox News, said that the FBI had tricked Flynn into not having a lawyer and had improperly post-dated documents to morph them into critical evidence against him. I would uh, not be surprised uh, a bit if the conviction of Flynn is overturned because of the Justice Department and FBI's misconduct and that, in fact, we go potentially all the way to the Supreme Court with new protections. When the FBI and the Department of Justice lie to uh, someone and tricks them into making statements and then charges them with a lie, they entrapped them in this kind of conduct we haven't seen in a long time. Well, at least not in Washington. It actually happens with some frequency. And Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani told Fox News Sunday that the president will sit down one on one with special counsel over his dead body amid bombshell new revelations in the false statements case against ex-national security by, uh, advisor Michael Flynn. Yeah, good luck. Good luck, Giuliani said, speaking to Fox News Sunday host Chris Wallace. After what they did to Flynn, the way they trapped him into perjury, well, Trump has already provided written responses to inquiries from the special counsel. In a spirited back and forth with Wallace, Giuliani also reiterated his claim that the president initially did not know about the hush money payments made to two women by former Trump attorney Michael Cohen. The prosecutors have allegedly uh, constituted campaign finance violations. And there's still some debate on whether or not that it does, in fact, constitute a crime or uh, a violation of campaign finance laws. And the president called for courts to test NBC and Saturday Night Live in a fiery tweet on Sunday that followed the show's final airing until after the holidays. SNL wrapped up a year of political humor directed at the Trump administration with a parody of the Christmas movie It's a Wonderful Life, in which it posited a world wherein Donald Trump, played by Alec Baldwin, was never elected president of the United States. The real President Trump responded Sunday morning by jabbing both the sketch 
uh, show and NBC. He tweeted, a real scandal is the one-sided coverage hour by hour of network like NBC and Democrat spin machine like Saturday Night Live. It is all... um, uh, it is all nothing less than unfair news coverage and dim commercials should be tested in courts. Can't be legal, question mark. Only defame and belittle collusion, question mark. Well, was it the lava walk that helped crown uh, Catriona Gray of the Philippines as the new Miss Universe just one day before the final competition in Bangkok? Gray won praise from uh, model Tyra Branks, uh, who described a video of her runway walk during a preliminary competition um, on Sunday, she, the 24-year-old, bested contestants from 93 other countries, including the United States, to capture the Miss Universe crown. The first runner-up was um, from South Africa, the third-place finisher from Venezuela. Gray, the uh, winner, succeeds uh, last year's winner uh, from South Africa, for those of you who might actually care. And on this day in 2011, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un dies after more than a decade of iron rule. He was 69, according to official records, but some reports indicated he was 70. And on this day in 1975, Lynette Fromm is sentenced in uh, Sacramento, California, to life in prison for her attempt on the life of President Gerald R. Ford. She is paroled in August of 2009. And on this day in 1944, the U.S. War Department announces it is ending its policy of excluding people of Japanese ancestry from the West Coast. And on this day in 1777, France recognizes America's independence from Britain. Well, the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, excuse me, was struck down by a Texas judge on Friday. We'll tell you more about that when we come back from the break. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Scott Gilchrist. He's the teacher of the Downtown Bible Class. We'll tell you about the upcoming Christmas Downtown Bible Class. That's this Wednesday. We'll also talk a little bit of, well, just Christmas. So stay with us. Scott Gilchrist coming in our next segment. Well, the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, was struck down by a Texas judge on Friday, a move that could suddenly disrupt the health insurance status of millions of Americans. The decision comes after six weeks of open enrollment uh, for the program. Uh, Texas, along with 19 states, had argued to U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor that they had been hurt by a jump in the amount of people utilizing state-backed insurance. When Congress uh, cut the tax penalty from the program in 2017, the states claimed it essentially undercut the Supreme Court's reasoning to finding former President Barack Obama's signature legislation constitutional in 2012. The remainder of the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, is non-severable from the individual mandate, meaning that the act must be invalidated in whole, O'Connor wrote in a 55-page opinion, according to Bloomberg. O'Connor is a conservative Republican appointee who previously blocked other Obama-era policies. As I predicted all along, Obamacare has been struck down as a... As an unconstitutional disaster, President Trump tweeted following that ruling. Now Congress must pass a strong, pass rather, a strong law that provides great health care and protects pre-existing conditions. Mitch and Nancy get it done. Well, in a second tweet, the president declared the ruling to be great news for America. Well, California and other states ruled against by the judge will likely challenge the decision by appealing to the United States Court of Appeals at, for the Fifth Circuit. 
Today's ruling as uh, rather is an assault on 133 million Americans with pre-existing conditions on the uh, 20 million Americans who rely on the ACL's consumer protections for health care on Americans faithful progress toward affordable health care for all Americans. Xavier Basara, which is California's attorney general, and in a statement, according to The New York Post, the ACL has already survived more than 70 unsuccessful uh, repeal attempts and um uh, withstood scrutiny in the Supreme Court. Obamacare has been struck down by a highly respected judge, the White House press secretary said, but this is the first salvo in what will be a back and forth, uh, I would imagine, for some time to come. Well, the reasoning for the judge striking it down as part of last year's Tax Cut and Jobs Act Congress repealed the financial penalty associated with failing to comply with the individual mandate that was effective in 2019. In 2012, in NFIB versus Sebelius, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the individual mandate by the narrowest margin when Chief Justice John Roberts, providing the deciding vote, devised a novel theory construing the penalty associated with violating the individual mandate as a tax that Congress has the power to levy under the Constitution. Now, that was interesting because the Democrats uh, tried to make the point that it wasn't a tax, uh, but the thing that saved it was the Supreme Court justice described it as a tax. Well, Texas argues that once the penalty is reduced to zero, it can no longer be considered a legitimate tax and that therefore the individual mandate would no longer have constitutional uh, leg to stand on. Texas argued as well in upholding the individual mandate, the Supreme Court appeared uh, to rely on the argument that Congress considered the individual mandate to be a central, indeed indispensable component of the plan that is not severable from the rest of the provisions and that without it, the rest of the law should be invalidated. Well, a group of 17 states led by California are defending the law, arguing that even a tax of zero dollars is still a tax and that it was never Congress's intent to get rid of the rest of Obamacare when it repealed the financial penalty associated with the individual mandate as part of last year's tax bill. Well, interesting enough, the um, Affordable Care Act and the multitude of regulations, taxes and benefits that come with it once again could be on the road to the Supreme Court after the judge ruled uh, on that plan and that uh, the newest member of the Supreme Court, uh, Judge or rather Justice Kavanaugh, along with uh, Judge uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who was responsible for upholding the Affordable Care Act, may be the deciding uh, voices vote on its future. So it will be something interesting to watch. Well, the Federal Reserve will hold its final policy meeting um, of 2018 this week. The meeting begins on Tuesday, ends with an interest rate decision on Wednesday afternoon, followed by a press conference with Fed Chair Jerome Powell. This week is predicted to be the busiest mailing, shipping and delivery week when nearly three billion pieces of first class mail, including greeting cards, will be processed and delivered. Monday afternoon, earnings results will be released by Oracle and Red Hat. Investors will also examine the latest data on manufacturing in the New York area with the Empire Manufacturing Report. And on Tuesday, in addition to the start of the Fed meeting, traders will examine the first of this week's reports on housing with the latest data on housing starts and building permits. Earnings will start to uh, play into the day-to-day stock market. Um, uh, A day later, Fed Chair uh, Jerome Powell will hold a press conference to discuss the latest interest rate decision and uh, so on. These are some of the uh, things to look forward to as a potential government shutdown is looming as we look uh, ahead to this week. And by the way, the government can't 
officially shut down in the way that we would tend to understand it by the use of that phrase, because 75 percent of it has already been funded. So it's a bit of a misnomer, as is usually the case, to say that there is a government shutdown uh, looming. There is a partial shutdown. That would be a more accurate way of um, of dealing with it or uh, describing it. Well, anyone who's taken a civics class might think that the federal government can only spend what Congress authorizes it to spend each year. But it turns out that the vast majority of spending doesn't require any such approval from lawmakers. $3.2 trillion. Well, the new report from the Government Accounting Office, a federal auditing agency, shows that of the $3.7 trillion the federal government spent in 2015, three point Two trillion of it didn't require authorization by Congress that year. In other words, Congress only specifically approved 14 percent of what the federal government spent that year. So how was the rest of the money spent? Well, the answer gets a little wonky, but it's critical for the public to understand. Over the years, Congress has passed laws that allow federal spending without any annual congressional approval or oversight for that matter. The biggest chunk is for so-called entitlement programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid and welfare. Congress provided these programs with permanent appropriations. Spending levels are set automatically based on eligibility rules and benefit amounts. Most people know about these programs. In 2015, they accounted for $2.6 trillion in spending authority out of the $3.2 trillion, by the way. However, Congress has granted federal agencies a variety of other ways to spend money without having to get approval from lawmakers each year. As the General Accounting Office notes, these include um, contract authority, borrowing authority, and offsetting collections. Offsetting collections refers to fees, fines, charges for permits. Congress then lets the agency spend that money on their own. Well, over the years, this kind of autopilot spending authority exploded from $1.7 trillion back in 1994 to $3.2 trillion, and that was back in 2015. That's an 87% increase after adjusting for inflation. Well, permanent appropriations on fund entitlements climbed 81% over those years. But offsetting collections rocketed up from 12 percent, or rather by 12 percent. In 2015, um, federal agencies spent more than 200, rather $421 billion this way. And contract authority by which Congress lets agencies under certain conditions spend money before Congress approve it, approves it has climbed 166 percent to $165 billion. Well, the Government Accounting Office says that this federal spending authority is supposed to provide federal agencies with greater flexibility because they can run programs without having to wait for congressional approval each year. But is it irresponsible on the part of lawmakers? It really amounts to an abdication of responsibility on the part of elected officials. By putting more and more of the government on autopilot, lawmakers, both Republicans and Democrats, can wash their hands of most of the federal budget. Sure, Congress can change the rules to rein in entitlements, offsetting collections and the like. But if it does nothing, the easiest roles for lawmakers to take, the spending happens anyway. They're not held accountable uh, for how it goes. Well, Congress may not have uh, any incentive to change this, but certainly a businessman like President Trump can uh, can see that with deficits climbing back um, to one trillion dollars and the national debt, 22 trillion. This is no way for the federal government to do its business or business as usual. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us, especially because uh, Pastor Scott Gilchrist will be joining me in just a moment. Scott Gilchrist has been senior pastor at Southwest Bible Church in a suburb of Portland since 1979. He's a frequent speaker at conferences, has a passion to see God's Word taught and understood, and he does it so well. He's heard daily on the radio broadcast Downtown Bible Class, heard right here on KPDQ, and he teaches the Bible uh, to the business community in downtown Portland every week at the Portland Art Museum. He was awarded an honorary doctorate by Western Seminary in 2007, and I'm just delighted to uh, welcome Scott Gilchrist back to uh, to the program. Merry Christmas, Scott Gilchrist. Thank you, Georgine. Merry Christmas to you. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Well, the Downtown Bible Class has an annual Christmas celebration, and that's coming up this Wednesday. Uh, and this gives folks who work in, in the downtown area an opportunity to take a break in the day and just enjoy a lunch and a, a great uh, reflection on the Christmas story. Tell us about this year. Well, it's always one of my favorite events of the Christmas season, and we're really looking forward to this Wednesday. So thankful that you can be with us. I'm we're looking really forward looking to forward it. We're looking forward to that. <laughs> And uh, but what we do is is we'll just uh, we'll have a nice luncheon in the grand ballroom of the art museum, and uh, we'll have some beautiful Christmas music thanks to you and your sister Donna Stutzman, and uh, then I'll give a brief message about why we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Christ Himself. It's always fun to go to the downtown Bible class because th- these are people who are working in the area, take a break in the middle of the day, and it gives you an opportunity. Uh, to get some great Bible teaching to encourage um, your your work day, your work week, uh, and to have some fellowship uh, right in the middle of the, the heart of the city and in the middle of the day. Yeah, it really is. Uh, we do it, of course, year-round, every Wednesday. And it's really been neat to see how the Lord has blessed that time. It's a very uh, non-stained-glass atmosphere. <laughs> you know, it's just right there in the business district, and people come from all over the uh, core of the business centers, and uh, just walk across to the art museum, and we we gather banquet style with coffee and and lunch, and we hold the program to thirty minutes uh, from twelve fifteen to twelve forty five, and each week we get to celebrate Christ. And I my goal is always to bring a clear uh, Christ centered message from the Scripture. But uh, this Wednesday is going to be all the more fun because uh, we're we're talking about the the amazing birth of Christ and the amazing gift of God that he would uh, see us in our plight and send his son into this world to rescue us. And I love all the, the imagery. I can't say I love all of it, I guess, <laughs> Much <of laughs> but it. I love, I love the, uh, the lights and the, the joyous music and so many of the Christmas carols state such great truth about the real reason we celebrate. So I do love this season, and I love that it gives us a chance to talk about the main the main reason we celebrate. Well, it really does present an opportunity to share the gospel when um, folks that we know may not be open to it during the rest of the year. Just about everybody um, celebrates Christmas, whether or not they have a real appreciation for its true meaning. But people are more open, I think, to hearing 
uh, the Christmas story, even if they think it, at least initially, just the novelty of it. And it's part of the tradition of Christmas. But it does present a tremendous opportunity, which reminds me that for folks who live and work in the downtown area, this is an informal atmosphere. It's easy to bring friends and coworkers. And this might just be the, the right time to bring someone who otherwise you might feel would be a, a bit more reluctant to come. I, I thoroughly agree with you. It's just a setting where it's right in the business district and people come and and it's very easy to just come in and find a seat and just enjoy the beautiful music, a great lunch, and then a, about a 15-minute message where I just uh, explain why we're celebrating and, and try, to, try to make it as clear as possible. And I find lots of people that... that uh, don't really have any any other contact with Christians uh, find that a setting where they they really do enjoy coming with a coworker or uh, someone that uh, they they do business mm-hmm. with. So it's a it's a great setting that way. A great opportunity. And as we mentioned, lunch is provided, and mm-hmm. uh, you really do keep it to thirty minutes. I tell you, I keep my eye on the clock. Is Scott Gilk, is he gonna, <laughs> Well, is he I know you're watching, <laughs> so I'll be careful. <laughs> But it no, really... we do that typically. You know, because yes, really is thirty minutes. It's not my normal <laughs> mode of. Uh, but when we established Downtown Bible uh, years ago, we realized that this is on lunch hour, and people need to be able to depend on it that uh, they can get back to their next appointment or whatever. And because of that, business people find it a very refreshing yes. uh, opportunity in the middle of the right in the middle of the work week and and the middle of the day. Yeah, and we we're emphasizing the Christmas uh, program this Wednesday, twelve fifteen to twelve forty five. But it, as you pointed out, it's every uh, week. Now, is there a break uh, for Christmas week? You know, we uh, we kid about it. We go fifty two Wednesdays a year, but this year it'll be fifty one <laughs> because we're going to take a break on the twenty sixth, the okay. week right after, or the Wednesday right after Christmas. We won't meet, but we'll be back at it in January. And uh, we know that people just we want people to know that when they're when they've got free time at lunch or they can make free time, why, if they walk over to the art museum, why, there'll be a a lot of people gathered in the ballroom uh, at 1215 having coffee and fellowship and talking about Christ. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. I know this is a season that for some, in fact, I have several friends who've lost loved ones just in the last day or two. Mm. Uh, This can be a season that's very difficult. Perhaps you're separated from loved ones for other reasons. Maybe there's been a death in the family. What do you say to those who love the Christmas season, but because of circumstances this year, it's, it's a bit more difficult to experience the joy that, um, that Christmas brings the, the knowledge of the savior might not be quite as, um, as joyful as in previous years. What do you say to those who are struggling during this time? That's a great point. And I think the the biggest thing I would say is that we've all gone through loss uh, and heartache in life. And I can't say that I know what you're going through or that you know what I'm going through. But when I get my eyes on the Lord Jesus, uh, he is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and I think there is a there is a tension. That's why I caught myself a minute ago when I said I love all the traditions. There is a bit of a tension sometimes between just the sentimentality mm-hmm. of celebrating the perfect Christmas with the family gathered. And boy, it can be hard when the family can't get together or 
one of the loved ones is missing or uh, you know you've lost them for and so I think the solution not only at Christmas time but just about uh, any day of the year is to refocus my own heart on the Lord Jesus himself and uh, he is the one who conquered death and rose again and when I get my eyes on him he knows what I'm going through and he's the only one who can really give me the words uh, that are more than mere words but the very words we associate with Christmas love and joy and peace and forgiveness and relationship these are things that uh, aren't merely catchwords or branding of a season but they're the reality of what it means to know our Creator personally and have a personal relationship with him so I don't say that lightly because I know this can be a very hard time of year, but uh, I know that uh, we need to cling to the Lord, and some more than others uh, desperately need this time of year to keep their eyes focused on Him and seek out His people. I mean, I yeah. I marvel that we are the hands and the and the arms and the eyes and the feet of the Lord. We're the body of Christ as Christians, and we need to encourage one another. And uh, that's one of the things I love about gathering downtown is that people find other believers that they didn't even know were in the tower next door to them or maybe the third floor of their building. Yeah, yeah. It's a great way to connect. You know, it seems so peculiar that during Christmas you really have to work at keeping it Christ-centered because so much of the focus has drifted away from the central meaning of the incarnation of Christ. We're going to take a break here in a moment. When we come back, could we talk a little bit about that? Sure, let's do it. All right. We're talking with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. He is, of course, the Bible teacher at Downtown Bible Class, both at the uh, Portland Art Museum and right here on KPDQ. This Wednesday is the Christmas-focused uh, Bible study. and You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with God, uh, Scott Gilchrist. He's been senior pastor at Southwest Bible Church. Since 1979, he's also the uh, uh, teacher of the downtown Bible class, both the daily radio broadcast heard here on KPDQ and the uh, Bible study to the business community, Christ-centered Bible teaching in the marketplace. Well, we are uh, j- approaching Christmas very uh, quickly, and yet it's um, more of a challenge than one might expect to keep Christ at the center of it. Uh, I suppose that's always been the case, that there are always um, intoxicating diversions to draw our attention away from the central focus of the incarnation of Christ. So maybe you could just talk about why it's important for us. We don't know the precise day that Jesus was born. We do know what the Word said about that event to look forward to from that vantage point that it historically occurred, and we look back to it today. But tell us about why it's important for us um, to remember to focus on that during this Christmas celebration. Yeah, I think it is uh, sometimes extra challenging just because of all the events at at the year end and during this time of year that can clutter us up. But something I've been doing the last couple, three years is just uh, each morning taking a look at one of the many prophecies of Jesus coming because there was centuries of anticipation uh, where God had promised to deliver a Savior, a liberator, and then to see the fulfillment in Jesus. And just taking a minute at the start of my day to 
uh, read and mull over some of those prophecies. And then the fulfillment in Jesus has been a, a great way for me to center my own heart. Uh, even when you when you mentioned that before we went to commercial break, I thought of of a, a prophecy regarding Jesus in the book of Isaiah where he says, encourage the exhausted hmm. and strengthen the feeble. And I'm confident that there are those listening to us right now who are feeling exhausted or feeble or both. Yeah. And uh, he says, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, say to those with palpitating heart, take courage, fear not. And he goes on and talks about the, the coming of Jesus and what he will do for us. And then you go to the New Testament and you see these people who were in the same kind of world we live in. They were facing challenges and there was a lot of heartache. And, and the book of Matthew says the people who were sitting in darkness saw great light. And uh, in a world like ours where there's so many problems and uh, so much darkness really, it is so good to uh, pause and remember him who came into the world and said, I am the light of the world. And he brings light into darkness. He calls us out of darkness into his light. And then we have the privilege of, of knowing our creator and walking with him and uh, looking forward to not the road ending, but because his birth always points toward his death and resurrection why when you and I as followers of Jesus, when we come to the end of this world, the end of our line here on earth, why he'll whisk us right into his presence where there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, and uh, there will be joy unspeakable. And so I can't emphasize enough how important it is to uh, keep our minds and our hearts fixed on, on these realities because these things are true. Jesus uh, there's only one place in the New Testament where he actually said, for this I was born. Hmm. And uh, the Bible, the many, many places the Bible tells us why he was born, but Jesus himself only said it one time. And uh, he said in John 18, actually right at the end of his life, he said, for this I was born, and for this I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And I've been mulling that one over because uh, he is the truth. He said he was. And everything about uh, him is true. He really does forgive sins. He really did die in my place. He really did rise again. And amazingly, it's uh, true he's really coming back again. I really enjoy thinking about c contemplating that um, aspect of the whole story of the gospel, that it wasn't just that Jesus came initially in a manger, but that he, of course, lived a sinless life. He did precisely what he said he would do. He was crucified, died, rose again. But the prospect that he is coming back again at some point in the future, whether that's in my lifetime or some point in the future, that is exciting to me that it's not just to Jesus who is remote and no longer here physically with us, but that I will see him again. I will see him for me the first time. He will be here again. Mm -hmm. And what an exciting part of the rest of the story. I think a lot of us are content to keep Jesus an infant in the manger without considering <laughs> the whole of the story. Yeah. He was born a king, and he's coming back as king. 
And the same anticipation that people had for centuries that was fulfilled when he came, why that anticipation is building now as we wait for his return. And actually, many of the many of the uh, Christmas songwriters really captured both yes. both aspects of that in the music that we sometimes sing. Uh, some of it's so familiar we forget that it's talking about both him coming as a babe and also coming in glory uh, to rescue us and and uh, take us home. And I I agree with you that there's nothing quite like remembering that. And a lot of the Christmas carols actually remind us of that. You know, joy to the world. The Lord is come, and there's going to no more let sorrows and sin uh, infest the ground. You know, the the kinds of uh, lyrics of these songs are based right out of those Old Testament promises that he will come and deliver his people. Mm. And the good news is it's not just a single occasion on the calendar, the 25th of December, that we spend a lot of time anticipating um celebrating and then looking back with maybe some regret or exhaustion, but it's a relationship he invites us to, to reconcile us with the Father through Jesus Christ. It's that walk that we can enjoy from that point moving forward until he does uh, come again. That makes Christmas, I think, such a joy. It's not the, um, you know, the anticipation and then kind of the letdown following Uh the season. It's just a reminder of the tremendous gifts that he has given us uh, through his life and sacrifice and grace and mercy and the things that we enjoy when we have relationship with him. I came, he said, that they might have life. And it isn't just the fact that uh, we we get life from him, but we enjoy that life. And uh, it's not a life without problems, but it's a life where he will never leave us. We get to walk with him through it. And as you said, celebrate it every day mm-hmm. because it gets richer and richer, even even in this world, we we find him to be everything he said he would be and more. And uh, and then we have all eternity to enjoy him. So you're really right. And I think sometimes we, we need to remind ourselves and remind others that we're not merely speaking of a baby in a manger. And as beautiful as the story of the incarnation is, uh, it, the Bible ties it to the whole purpose he came uh, which was, as you said, to die and rise again on our behalf and uh, come back for us. So we've got a great Savior. No wonder they said "Great new, good news of a great joy. Yes, yes. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing you on Wednesday and having the opportunity to share a song along with my sister, Donna Stutzman. Again, that's at the... Um, um, Sunken ball. Well, are you in the sunken ballroom we're, we're for this in Wednesday? The grand ballroom. Okay, the third floor grand ballroom at the art museum, right at the corner of of uh, Maine and Park. And I'm looking forward to hearing you guys. It, it's always a joy to hear your beautiful music, and uh, it's going to be a great time. Well, thank you. And again, that's twelve fifteen to twelve forty five. Enjoy a lunch and some good fellowship, and a reminder of the true meaning of Christmas at the downtown Bible class. Pastor Scott Gilchrist, I thank you so much for your clear, consistent Bible teaching, for your commitment to our community and pastoring Southwest, and look forward to us. Uh, to hanging out a little bit on Wednesday. All right. Well, thank you, Georgine. You have a great Christmas. I'll see you Wednesday and wish you Merry Christmas again. But Look forward to it. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, Scott Gilchrist. Downtown Bible Class this Wednesday, 1215. You can arrive early and gather your lunch and find a place to sit if you'd like, but you can arrive at 1215. It'll be wrapped up at 1245. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, veteran bookseller James Mustish is the uh, author of 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die, a life-changing list. He puts 1,000 great books at readers' fingertips, 14 years in the making, and fifth in the phenomenally successful 1,000 Before You Die series, which is over 4.4 million copies in print. This compelling compendium of 1,000 noteworthy books to get lost in is essential reading for every book lover, and it saves you a lot of time trying to discover what What's uh, what may not be known? Well, readers like you and I will never again have to wonder what to read next. It is masterfully uh, put together. It's a literary guide. It provides uh, over 900 pages of notable books, including classic novels, beloved mysteries, children's books, poetry, memoirs, acclaimed contemporary fiction, seminal works of cultural criticism, and much more. Uh, the authors run the, the uh, gamut. Uh, the list is uh, not a canon or a prescriptive list. Rather, it's an invitation to explore. It's readable. It's entertaining. It's surprising and enlightening. Organized A to Z by author and selection. It takes the reader on a roller coaster of entries and will keep you occupied for a long time, just sorting through what your options might be. Well, my guest is James Mustich. He began his career in book selling at an independent bookstore in Briarcliff Manor, New York, in the uh, early 1980s. In 1986, he co-founded the acclaimed book catalog, A Common Reader, and was its guiding force for two decades. He has subsequently worked as an editorial and product development executive in publishing industry. He lives with his wife, Margot, in Connecticut, but today we have him right here by phone and are delighted to welcome James Mustich. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, this is a volume that in and of itself could keep readers occupied for quite some time. First of all, let me commend you for making it available to those of us who are always looking for a great read. Well, thank you for that. It's my pleasure. And I think you're right that uh, any reader would find hours and hours of diversion within the covers of my book because of the, of the many books I talk about, but also then have really a lifetime's reading beyond it if they go uh, and sample some of the books that I describe. Now, the title might lead our listener to believe that this is just a list of a thousand books that they might want to consider reading, but it really is much more than that in terms of the depth and breadth of information you provide on each one. Um, sort of a, a, an option of, of going from one author uh, whose book you mentioned to other books they've written. Now, I want to get into that uh, in just a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit about you. You write in the introduction, uh, titled In the Company of Books, that you caught the reading bug as a child from your mother, who is still, at 89, the most constant reader I know. Tell us a little bit of your background and how books became so important to you personally, and then uh, making it possible for the rest of us to have a better appreciation of the uh, options that are available today. I just was reading an article, uh, Georgine, about uh, reading and how to get young people to read. And the author of this article said that the most important thing was for children to see a parent reading rather than being told to read or being urged to read. The modeling behavior is really important. And I wasn't aware of that when I was a kid, except that my mom was, was, was a real voracious reader. And we always had books around in the house. And her, one of her favorite pastimes was going to used book sales or going to libraries and bookstores, and I was happy to go with her. That's how I caught the bug from her uh, advocacy for reading and for books. And she read 
a very wide range of, of subjects and style. Uh, and still today, as, as I mentioned, she's, she's getting closer to 90 now since the time I wrote that, but she's still reading all the time. I was just shopping for her yesterday for some Christmas presents with some new books for her. Mm, incredible. Well, I aspire to be your mother one day. <laughs> In the book you offer, um, and again, it's not just a dry read. Here's the title of the book. Who, here's who wrote it. Here's, you know, the publisher and a brief explanation. You offer extensive illustrations, uh, beautiful covers of the books, photos of the authors, illustrations, and so on. Uh, describe for the listener who doesn't have the benefit of having the volume in front of them, as I do, what they can expect from a thousand books to read a life-changing lift before you die. The book consists of a thousand brief, uh, informative, and I hope, and I believe, entertaining essays about all of the books I write about. The book covers everything from in time from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was written 4,000 years ago, to books that were just published last year. Uh, and in terms of age of readers, you could start with Goodnight Moon and go, Read your way all through life to old age and uh, uh, C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. So it covers a lot of ground. Uh, it's every subject and style. The book is the books I write about are about one half fiction and one half nonfiction. And in writing about them, I tried to be um, courteous to the reader in that I wanted to give the context for the book and the author, so that someone who may never have heard of this book before or even if they had heard some of something about the book and the author, um, could be invited into the book by knowing a little bit more about the author, judiciously chosen facts and information. And then I try to talk about why the book is important and why you should read it. Because to me, the most important part of a, of a recommendation of a book is when a fellow reader just says to you, you have to read this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to get that kind of ad advocacy into the writing that I did. In addition to the essays about the books, the, each book um, that I write about has endnotes in which I give important dates uh, when the book was originally published. I might recommend a translation if it's a work that was not written in English. I recommend movies, adaptations if they're good, and also audiobooks uh, performances that I think are are equal to the to the book at hand. And then I recommend additional books by the author, other books on the same subject, and other books to try if you'd like that one. So all told, there's about 5,500 books recommended between the covers of mine. And let me just say something about, you mentioned the illustration, the design of the book, which I had nothing to do with except to applaud the designers, <laughs> is beautiful. Yeah. Working Publishing did a fantastic job. I remember the first day when I met the designer, she showed me the pages and the design that she had worked out. And I had been looking at this book for 14 years as just Word documents coming out of my home printer. And it was, I wanted to cry. It was so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I also like a, a section at the um, toward the end of the book, a miscellany of special lists. And you include things like read in a sitting. It includes, you know, short uh, titles, 12 books to read before you're 12, mind-expanding books, a long climb, but what what have you. These are books that require a considerable investment of time, but they're worth the, the effort. Uh, again, giving us a perspective and things to consider as we're weighing, okay, which book will I read next? Because there are so many titles floating around out there. To have some reference point is so incredibly helpful in determining what you're going to read next. 
Well, I'm glad you pointed out those lists because that's a way to uh, direct people to something they might be interested in uh, without having to read through the whole book. And in fact, my ideal user of this book just opens it up anywhere and starts browsing around, much like a reader would do in a bookstore or in a library. They might go in looking for something specific to see if, uh, you know, your favorite book is among my thousand. Uh, but then to just browse around for the thing that kind of catches your eye and that speaks to something at the back of your mind that you were interested in, but you weren't thinking of at the moment. Because I think that kind of agency that reading gives us where we can commune with our own uh, intuitions and interests. It's really important. And I wanted the book to be fun in that way. With the introduction of technology that allows us to listen to a book, to read it digitally and so on, how, from your perspective, has that changed our love of reading or our love of books in general, or has it? Uh, It's a good question. I still don't think we know the, the full answer to that. But I have found that um, it has certainly made uh, reading more convenient. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can read. Uh, I, I'm always reading four or five books at a time. So if I'm traveling, I like to have an e-reader because carrying four or five <laughs> books can get to be pretty heavy, you know. And uh, so that's uh, that's nice. And you can also get a book at a moment's notice uh, with an e-reader. Um, but I myself still enjoy physical books the most. Yes, me too. Because I like the feel of the book and the look of the page. And let's face it, all of us are spending so much of the rest of our lives looking at screens that it's nice to have something physical and beautifully designed to handle and to read. And I hope, you know, in, in, in a larger way, I think that uh, books are important and, and reading deeply into stories or biographies, any kind of nonfiction, because that's where we kind of enrich the conversation that we have with ourselves. That's so important. And the rest of our world is delivered to us these days in news feeds and in little snippets that really don't have context that are gone in 15 minutes. Um, and the ability to, to kind of uh, indulge your own trade of train of thought or to follow the train of thought of an author really enriches our imaginations and I think our intelligence deeply. So I I hope that um, as technology takes more of a hold on our lives, as I think it will, that young people especially are taught the value of reading and learn to cherish those moments when they're really, you know, engaging in that most important conversation, which is with their own hearts and minds. We're talking about the book, 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die, A Life-Changing List, and it certainly is that. James Mustich is my guest. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with James Mustich. He's the author of 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die, A Life-Changing List. The book is published by Workman and uh, certainly worth a space in your library, which uh, in my case is uh, overrun with books. That's the only disadvantage of the book I love to hold while I'm reading is I just have too many of them. And like children, how are you going to choose which one to get rid of? <laughs> you know, just you keep them all. I, and... I, I feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, how do you start writing a book about 1,000 books? I mean, you've been in the industry for a number of years, but how do you begin and what do you, uh, what criterion do you use to decide what to include, what to exclude, and so on? 
that's a great question. It took me a while to get my head around how to approach um, this project because a book about a thousand books could be many different things. It could be a canon of classics or the most influential books of all time. It could be uh, a record of best-selling and most popular titles. Because books treat every subject of human thought, you could really have a tour of the significant disciplines of culture. Um, and so there's many ways at it. But what I was after is something that I think um, hasn't been done in quite this way before. I wanted to represent what a reading life was actually like. And, and I believe that we read the way we eat so that one day we may be happy with a hot, do a hot dog and the next day we want to go out for a fancy dinner. And then we may eat as the spirit moves us or as our hunger dictates. And so we read the same way. We read for nourishment, you know, intellectual nourishment, but we also read for indulgence and for entertainment and for conversation. So I wanted to get the variety of reading uh, into the book. And so what I finally decided to do, having been a bookseller, was I asked myself the question, what if I had a bookstore and I could only have a thousand books in it, but I wanted to have something for anybody who came in looking for something good to read, whether they wanted to learn about ancient history or find a good thriller to take on the plane for a trip or to find a picture book for their grandchildren. And so that gave me a handle on the lists of thousands of books that I had, how to winnow it down to kind of represent a reading life with a broad range of interests to include uh, many of the acknowledged classics of literature, but also to have a, a lot of surprises in there. So there's books um, about, uh, you know, there's memoirs, books about travel, books about food. There's a book about horse racing, book about football. There's books about religion. There's books of poetry. I wanted that kind of richness that you would get if you went into a, into a wonderful bookstore and just started browsing around. Now, in your introduction, I mentioned that you've been working on this book for 14 years, and most of us can't imagine doing anything for or anything like half of that <laughs> length of time. But how did that uh, challenge change over time as you begin looking at books that are contemporary as well as classics and then moving forward for 14 years? Well, it's, it, it kept the list of possible titles kept growing because, as you say, new books were coming out every year. And I was learning about new books every year because once people know that you're writing a book called A Thousand Books to Read Before You Die, you can never enjoy a dinner party in quite the way you did before. <laughs> everybody wants to tell you about what they've just read or what their favorite books are, which is wonderful. For the years that I did the catalog, which you mentioned, The Common Reader, I would get letters from readers all the time with just that kind of passion about the books they love. My wife and I still have eight filing cabinets in our basement filled with these letters. And that's the kind of passion I wanted to get into the book. So I just kind of kept at it. I have to credit my wife, Margot, for keeping me at it because it was a long haul. You know, it was, it's, there were there were months when it felt like I had the longest homework assignment of all time. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you survived it. I did, yes, and I'm glad I did. How did you determine which books made the cut? I mean, I can't imagine just whittling down all the titles that you're aware of and familiar with to a thousand. And as I mentioned, you connect books to other books, so that must have helped. But how do you decide uh, which to include? Well, the you know, it, it's I've learned in, 
in traveling around since the book came out uh, a couple of months ago and talking to people that there are, as I already knew, but to hear people ask about books that I hadn't included, um, it's, it's an amazing, it's a humbling experience to work on something for 14 years and make this big book. But there's a part of every day where somebody makes you feel like a slacker because you left something out <laughs> that, you know, that they love and that you know it's a great book. So uh, I try to you know, cover the ground of the, of the classics and then the books that I had loved and the books that readers who'd loved passed on to me. But at a certain point, you know, you're just kind of going with your gut. I also wanted to make sure I had something to say about them and writing about them. And so it was a mix of all those factors that weighed, that weighed into it. I'm, I'm, and I'm not quite sure it was uh, as rigorous as it might have been. But I think the result is, is fun for the reader and will extend their horizons in the right way. Yeah, and I, I wanted to emphasize extending their horizons because it introduces maybe genres that, that the reader is not aware of or authors or, or kind of pathways to take to discover books that are being written even as they're reading through this one. Um, that will help to whet their appetite and satisfy their curiosity and need for a, for an, another book. Um, did you have a chance to meet any of the authors included in the book? Uh, and if so, um, what was that like, um, either determining if they were going to be included or talking with them about the fact that they had been? Well, uh, in my career in bookselling, I've had the good fortune of interviewing uh, a good number of the authors uh, in the book. Uh, you know, Philip Roth and um, uh, uh, Richard Holmes, the great uh, British biographer, Robert Caro, the American biographer, um, lots of great authors. But that was all uh, while I was working on the book and, and before I could tell them that they were going to be in it. So I haven't had a chance yet to meet up with many of them uh, to see uh, how they feel about being included. I hope they'd be pleased and proud and that uh, they'd be acknowledge that I had said some worthwhile things about them, but that remains to be seen. Mm. Um, how many of the um, authors would you say you have met over the course of your probably, career? <laughs> probably two or three dozen. Two or three dozen. Yeah. Wow. Out of the, uh, and so I've been blessed to, uh, to have uh, jobs in the book business, which allowed me to speak with them and to meet them. And uh, that's always eye-opening uh, to, to talk with an author, uh, especially if you've had a long-standing relationship with mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. his or her work. Yeah. Now, one of the things I mentioned uh, earlier is the fact that you have uh, books for children as well. I think sometimes parents struggle with, okay, which book should I introduce and encourage my son or daughter or grandchildren, for that matter, to read? Uh, so you include um, children's books as well, which I suppose is an introduction to the world of reading that one hopes uh, children will uh, translate into adulthood and, and being um, readers as well. How did you select the children's books, both classic and new? Well, again, books that I had loved uh, in, from my old childhood, but mostly through the lens of uh, reading with my daughters, who are both in their mm. 20s now. But we as a family have uh, read a lot of books together, listened to audio books all the time. So, and then just kind of observing their interests as they grew and having been a bookseller and, uh, and talked to parents about, uh, about books that were important to their their reading lives and their children's reading lives, I kind of put it together from all of that. 
it's it's for the kids books there's a lot of focus on the classics um because uh, there's a the bookseller was once asked recommending books to a to a, a grandmother coming to the store and the grandmother said you know i want some books for my for my new grandchild bookseller came back with a pile of books and the grandmother said but these are all old books and the bookseller said well yes madam but the readers are always new <laughs> and so that's you know, that's the way the great kids' books work. And especially the, 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 for the youngest readers, the picture books, it's a, a picture book that, to be successful, has to be very smartly put together because if a child loves the book, you as a parent are going to read it dozens and dozens and dozens of times, and it has to retain its freshness. Mm-hmm. And that's not easy to do. So. Um, I was looking for that kind of factor as well in recommending children's books. Well, the book is titled 1,000 Books to Read Before You Die, a life-changing list. And I appreciated the diversity of subjects and authors and periods and so on. Uh, Just an excellent book to have in your own library, but certainly one you might consider gifting the reader or the aspiring reader in your life as well. James Mustich, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it very much. Again, the book is published by uh, Workman and is available in bookstores. Find a spot in my overcrowded library to include this one. I imagine myself retired, cuddled up in the winter with a blanket, a cup of something hot, probably tea, not much of a coffee drinker, and a good book. Maybe one I culled from this good book. All right. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, and yeah, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I am so delighted to have a friend in studio, Dennis Turi, who is the executive director of the Parents Education Association. Um, he uh, and it has written uh, the Biblical Voter Guide for Oregon. His reputation in politics uh, brought him to the honor of serving as the board member of the Oregon Family Council. He and his wife, Christine, live in Canby. They have five children, eight grandchildren, which I'm certain is a joy. And we're here today to talk about PPAC, the Parents Education Association Political Action Committee. They're dedicated to transforming civil government through biblical truth. And uh, this is an organization that has probably had more influence than most of you uh, are aware of. And I'm delighted to talk a bit about uh, the work and an opportunity to support that work moving forward and the, um, the publishing of their first ebook. So Dennis Turi, it's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, let's talk about um, the Parents Education um, Association, or PPAC, as those of us who are familiar know. Uh, For listeners who are unfamiliar, can you just give us a brief overview of the work? Sure. We began in uh, 1983, and our big focus for the first few years was Christian education. So we were the ones that introduced and got past the 1985 Homeschool Freedom Bill, um, when nobody thought we could do such a thing, and the Democrats were in control of the legislature. So that kind of is where we launched. It remains one of our primary focuses. We're working on educational savings accounts uh, legislation, and we're going to try to continue to protect private and home schools. I'm pretty sure that with the increased liberal control over the legislature, they're going to start targeting um, Christian education. And so that's an absolute bulwark for trying to maintain a Christian culture here. So that remains a focus for us. Uh, But after that, we got into ballot measure analysis, from a biblical perspective, we've helped elect a lot of candidates over the years. Uh, we were part of the group that, by 1994, had taken Republican control of both the Oregon House and Senate. Um, and we've done these 
biblical ballot measure voters guides for years and years and years. And so over the years, we've accumulated a lot of them. And so we're now producing these eBooks that have the analysis, of these various measures. And there's a way to search it topically. Um, so if you want to know what we think, at least the Bible says about taxation or education or whatever it is, there's a topical index as well as a lot of other articles on uh, Christian presuppositions for biblical government, that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of an overview, and we continue to work with a lot of other organizations, as you know. Mm-hmm. We're part of the Oregon Liberty Alliance. Uh, we produced the uh, put on the Freedom Rally every February. Uh, and had a lot of fun bringing good speakers to Oregon for that. And we work with these other groups targeting particular candidate races, either in primaries or the general election. Uh, so we're very specific in our focus. Finally, we've made a few little inroads into trying to analyze judicial candidates. That's very difficult. But we're kind of committed, you know, to uh, legislative candidates, judicial candidates, and ballot measures or laws. Uh, So that's kind of our focal point. I so appreciate um, the work that you do because you bring a biblical focus to the questions that uh, we as responsible citizens are called upon to weigh in on. And oftentimes it's a challenge to hear competing uh, explanations of a thing, whether that's a candidate or a measure or so on. What does the scripture have to say about this? And it's not always apparent to the average follower of Jesus, whether or not the scripture speaks to a thing. And if so, what does the Bible teach? And so you give us biblical focus so that as we're preparing to be men and women of faith who live out our faith, even as we're exercising our freedom to vote, to do so in a way that's consistent with a biblical worldview. So I so appreciate your work and a thoughtful and um, a biblical approach to these subjects that we confront on a regular basis. No, thank you very much. You know, it's really hard to do, not because uh, you can't study. I can study and do all that sort of stuff. But here's the problem, Georgine, and I've realized this more and more. What we're trying to do is initiate conversations. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, it's it's pretty easy to come across as, well, we've studied the Bible and we know the answer for this. <laughs> and that's not what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're trying to begin a conversation and we recognize that good Christian people will have different interpretations of the scriptures. But our our whole thing then, I guess by way of another way of saying it is, we want the conversation amongst Christians in terms of public policy to be Bible-focused. And so, you know, we we begin the conversations, but we really try to enhance, and now we're doing it more on Facebook, where you can make, or blog posts, where you can have interaction with Mm -hmm. people and maybe change positions. So our big goal is, you know, just that, as you said, to articulate kind of a biblical position. But, you know, we certainly want to have the humility to recognize that these are issues are complicated. Yeah, anyway. absolutely. And but you encourage us to think, if I can use the word Christianly, about the challenges of our day. And we could, we're always going to do better when we make that our focus. Not just what's in my best interest as a an individual, but what what is um, what's in the best interest of the community from a biblical perspective. So I appreciate your challenging us to think uh, in that way, even if we don't agree on the the specific yeah, outcome. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the ultimate goal is you know glorifying God. Absolutely. Glorify him. And it's funny, you know, because these days to say something like that, when we put out a biblical ballot measure voters guide, I get people on Facebook saying, we think what you're doing is illegal, you know, because there should be no church state involvement. It's really odd. I mean, people don't know their history anymore. Education has become quite bad, I think, historically. I mean, in terms of teaching American history. Yes. 
Um, this country, I'm listening to a book now on John Moore, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, John Marshall, mm-hmm. uh, one of the first Supreme Court justices. And the, and the title of the book is The Man Who Made the Supreme Court. And it's fascinating to think about how difficult it was for the country to form laws. I mean, what do you do? You've broken away from England. And as you probably know, Blackstone's commentaries on the English common law was a tremendous text for beginning to build American law. Um, I, maybe you didn't know this. I didn't know it. <laughs> but Charles Finney, and we can agree or disagree on how good we think Finney was, but Finney, before he was a minister, was an attorney. And it was in his reading of Blackstone's commentaries and all the scripture citations in Blackstone's commentaries on the common law, that's what brought Finney to faith. That's what made a mm. Christian out of him. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that fascinating? It is fascinating, which reminds us, you know, don't underestimate the value of a Christian perspective being expressed in different forums that might have an influence. Yes. Now, one, we're talking about the Parents Education Association Political Action Committee that gives you the uh, opportunity to uh, extend influence into our, our community. This is a season in which we have until the uh, the first of the new year uh, to make political donation at no cost, which doesn't sound quite right, but but it is correct. We can, as an individual, make a contribution of $50 or as a couple, $100. And um, we, we get that money essentially back from uh, from our taxes. I'm not explaining it very well, but one of the things I want to emphasize is um, the need for funding moving forward and the great opportunity that we have to take advantage of that political tax credit. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's a direct dollar for dollar tax credit. It's not a deduction. Whether you itemize deductions or not, it's you still get the credit. So anybody that pays Oregon state taxes can get that money uh, back on their tax return if they donate to a political group by the end of the year. So, you know, it's a tremendous Christian stewardship opportunity when we have such little opportunity to necessarily speak into the public arena these days. It's a great thing that the Lord has given us uh, the opportunity to take this tax credit money and bring it back away from the liberals who will use it to undermine Christian values and to give it to various political groups that will use it to strengthen Christian values and public policy. So it's a it's a real blessing. You know, I think I saw a statistic that only 6% of Oregon taxpayers make use of the political action tax credit. And that most of those people are unions who are supporting, you know, mm-hmm. candidates of the Democratic Party. So there's a tremendous opportunity for Christians to support groups like ours that speak from a biblical basis into the public policy arena. And as you say, it really costs them nothing. Plus this year, giving away a free gift too, the <laughs> the ebook on ballot measures. Well, let's talk about that ebook. Um, it's uh, titled Best of PPAC, again, the Parents Education Association Political Action Committee, Best of PPAC, Volume 1, 1996 to 1999, a biblical commentary on Oregon's ballot measures. I had the opportunity to read this before uh, it's uh, been made available. What a useful historic document that, <laughs> that helps us to look back that may inform how we look forward here in the state of Oregon uh, with regard to ballot measures. Yeah, a friend of mine suggested we do it. And at first I thought, well, that's kind of crazy. But then I thought, wait a minute, I've put a lot of work into this stuff. <laughs> Maybe it'd be of interest to people, you know, as again, as a starting point of discussion to talk about public policy from a Christian perspective. In addition to the ballot measure stuff, there's various articles in there too, as I mentioned earlier. But yeah, we think it would be useful for people um, to, to read and, and to make use of. Yeah, history is always important. Yeah. We, the better we understand how things have 
been done looking back, it might help us to do a better job moving forward uh, in understanding the challenges and certainly our um, our history. Now, for people who want to give to um, PPAC or who are interested in the ebook, what's the best way for them to take advantage of this political tax credit, which, I, you know, you'd have to be confused not to, <laughs> to take advantage of? Well, uh, you know, for people that use the Internet a lot, you can just go to PPAC.org. That's P-E-A-P-A-C.org. The, the PAC, by the way, just stands for Political Action Committee. So it's PPAC.org, and there's a donate button, and you can fill out the form. And there is also on that same form a set of frequently asked questions about the tax credit that explain it in a little bit more detail if you have any questions about it. But that's the easiest way. Uh, another way, which is simply to write a check to P.O. Box 847, 847 in Canby, Oregon, 97013. Or they could also call us at 503-263-8337 and leave a message. Again, that number is 503-263-8337 and P.O. Box 847. That's in Canby, 97013. And I hope you'll take advantage of that. You're right. It's a great... Um, stewardship opportunity because that's money the government is e- either going to keep or you're going to get back. So get it back. Let's right. uh, <laughs> let's claw let's, back your taxes. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, Dennis Tory, thank you so much for all that you do and for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you very much. Again, Dennis Tory is the executive director of the Parents Education Association Political Action Committee. Uh, they write the uh, voter guides uh, for Oregon, and um, he also serves on the board of the Oregon Family Council. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back shortly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. A couple of anniversaries came and went this past I guess it was the weekend, and I wanted to draw them to your attention. The first was December the 15th, which is the anniversary of the 1791 ratification of our Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution and the rule of law it enshrines. Well, the Bill of Rights was inspired by three remarkable documents, John Locke's 1689 thesis, two treatises of government regarding the protection of property in the Latin context, um, Uh, one's own life, liberty, and estate. The Virginia Declaration of Rights, authored by George Mason in 1776, is part of that state's constitution. And, of course, our Declaration of Independence, authored by Thomas Jefferson. Uh, The Bill of Rights, read in context, is both an affirmation of innate, unalienable rights. People say that very differently from time to time. Unalienable rights of man and a clear proscription upon any central government infringement of those rights as oft trampled and abused as the Bill of Rights is by those who've sworn an oath to support and defend our Constitution, most notably judicial supremacists, as I think they are often rightly uh, labeled or the despotic branch, as Jefferson called the judiciary. Patriots must remain ever vigilant in order to sustain those very rights. Again, December the 15th, the anniversary of the 1791 ratification of the Bill of Rights. And then the following day, December 16th, it was in 1773, radicals from Boston, members of a secret organization of American patriots called the Sons of Liberty, boarded three East India Company ships and threw 342 chests of tea into Boston Harbor. I gave my mother um, her annual Christmas tea with a, a few of her friends, and I can't imagine 342 chests of perfectly good tea, but you got the point. This iconic event in protest of oppressive British taxation 
annexation and tyrannical rule became known as the Boston Tea Party. Resistance to the crown had been mounting over enforcement of the 1764 Sugar Act. I think I would have been a part of that, you know, to deprive me of sugar or to uh, raise the taxes so high that I couldn't have access to it. 1765 Stamp Act and the 1767 Townsend Act, which led to the Boston Massacre and gave rise to the slogan, No Taxation Without Representation. The 1773 Tea Act and resulting Tea Party protest galvanized the colonial movement opposing British parliamentary acts, which violated the natural care, uh, charter rather and constitutional rights of the colonists. Well, three years later, this rebellion had grown to such extent that the founders were willing to give up their fortunes and lives, attaching their signatures to a document that declared, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Now, there was a period of time in which that was forgotten in practical terms. My forebears uh, suffered the consequence, but it goes on that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. End quote. Of course, uh, the Boston Tea Party uh, gave rise, gave birth to that document that is um, familiar to many of us. I also wanted to mention that, uh, you know, as the clock is ticking and we're drawing closer to Christmas, uh, many of us exchange gifts with one another. And if you have had a difficult time finding the perfect gift for someone on your list who has everything, particularly the female on your list, I want to let you know that Vladimir Putin, his unashamed Machismo has led to his 2019 beefcake calendar outselling all other calendars in Japan. Hmm. Japanese politicians with a similar fondness for Russian President Vladimir Putin might not have to worry about suffering the same electoral fate, at least not if recent calendar sales accurately indicate the popularity of the former KGB officer in Japan. Putin is currently contributing to an unprecedented number of calendar sales in a foreign country. That's according to Japan Today. The retail chain Loft, which has shops across Japan, says it's Putin's calendar. It has far outsold all of its other 2019 famous people calendars, including those featuring Japanese celebrities such as movie star Kai Tanaka. The reason for Putin's popularity, according to Japan Today, a recent explosion of self-proclaimed Putin fans that's a bit disconcerting. Or young women with a feverish zeal for the foreign leader. Really? A feverish zeal for Vladimir Putin, whose shirtless form appears in several appealing poses in the Putin calendar. The Guardian reports that such fans are drawn to Putin's unconventional style and unashamed machismo. If possible, or rather it's possible... Um, that, uh, according to Japanese commentators, that some consumers are buying the calendar as a practical joke, but there's no way to really gauge that. The calendar shows Putin, who has uh, overseen anti-democratic social media disinformation campaigns here in the U.S. and in other Western countries, both at work and at play. There's a James Bond-like image of Putin jumping off a just-landed helicopter. Ooh. There's another one that shows the topless 66-year-old descending into an icy lake. Wow. 
Putin watchers believe the Russian leader regularly orders the murder of his critics. Last year, the Washington Post listed 10 outspoken critics of Putin who were killed or died mysteriously since 2003. Now, that's not to pressure you into buying the calendar. There's no evidence to suggest that those who decline to purchase the calendar will simply vanish or find themselves um, in a hospital. But nonetheless, Vladimir Putin, beefcake, 2019 calendar. For the uh, person on your shopping list who has absolutely everything. And speaking of Putin and um, the influence of Moscow in a development that may receive uh, little attention here in the West, but could have important geopolitical implications. Three Orthodox church bodies in Ukraine united at the weekend to choose a new head, uh, cementing a split from Russian oversight, oversight rather that Ukraine's president characterized as the writing of a wrong going back more than three centuries. In the face of resistance from the head of the Russian Orthodox Church in Moscow, Patriarch Kirill, who's viewed as uh, close to President Vladimir Putin, most likely with his shirt on, the separate Ukrainian bodies joined to form the Orthodox Church of Ukraine. Uh, They also elected a new leader, um, a metropolitan uh, at 39, significantly younger than the heads of the three merging churches who range in age from 74 to 89. The decision aims to bring together Orthodox Christians who account for 70 percent of Ukraine's population of 44 million. Beyond church unity, however, the president uh, called Saturday's event uh, a sacred day and a landmark moment for Ukraine's full and final independence from Russia. Speaking outside the Unity Council in the uh, uh, capital St. Sophia Cathedral, he cited the words of the 19th century national poet uh, and said Ukraine would no longer drink Moscow's poison from Moscow's cup. My guess is there won't be many sales of the Vladimir Putin shirtless calendar. Just a speculation. I could be wrong. I want to thank James Blind for producing and engineering today's program and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.